So we'll be looking at this section in Romans 8, starting in verse 12. Um, so as is good practice, I mean, Paul does this, and I think we, you know, we, we attempt to do this all the time. And it's, what we're going to see this morning is that Paul is going to give us application of some of the theology he's been teaching. So uh, <clears throat> he sees value, and I think we do as well. We see value in not just knowing things. Um, it's good to read and it's good to understand the, the truth and the theological concepts. But now Paul wants to start applying these things. Like, what does it mean that we are no longer condemned? Like, how do we live our life every single day knowing these truths, right? That we're, we're, there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we are walking in the Spirit all of the time. All of these things that we've been talking about for the last two weeks, um, he's going to then put in perspective for us and help us to, <coughs> to see what it means kind of on a daily basis on how to do this. So let's read this together, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's a lot of good, interesting things going on here. Um, We'll start just at the beginning and work our way through it. So this first statement that we are no longer debtors to the flesh... If we were, then we would be living according to the flesh. And then Paul says, once again, he reminds us again, look, if you're living according to the flesh, the result of that is death. As Christians, that is not the result that we face, right? But in fact, we don't have death if we're not living in the flesh. If we are living by the Spirit, we have life and we have life in Christ. And so as Christians, this is a promise that God has given to us, right? We are promised life. We are promised that there is no condemnation. But for those who are not following Christ, then this statement is is applying to them, indebted to the flesh. In other words, a person who is not a Christian is being forced, they are in debt to their flesh, to their sin nature. They are forced to follow that all of the time. We saw last week that the mindset on the flesh, it cannot submit to God's will, right? It cannot submit to God's law. It cannot please God no matter what. That's what we saw in verses 7 and 8. And this is really important to remember because we all know somebody, right? We all know somebody who is not a Christian, whether it be somebody where we work with, whether it be a neighbor, family member, whatever. This idea that that person is enslaved to their sin. They have no choice but to do things that anger God, that displease Him. When I read these things, it, it reminds me, it it. it Reinvigorates me in wanting to be, um, to wanting to evangelize, to wanting to go and share the gospel. Because I know that these people whom I know who are not following Jesus, who have no desire to be with Him, have any relationship with Him, this is their reality. That they are indebted to this. They have no choice but to follow after their sin nature. I don't know about you, but uh, I mean, I was, I was saved at a young age, eight, eight years old. 
Um, I don't, so I, I couldn't tell you like, oh, I remember vividly what it was like when I was seven years old, indebted to my flesh. But I, I, I recognize that that is not a state that I want to be in. And I know like even watching my parents who were saved much later in life and just knowing people who are in it, that this is not a state in which anybody wants to live in, but they're stuck in it. Our call to evangelism is to try and bring the message of God, bring the message of salvation to the world so that people can be saved out of that. So that that person that you know who doesn't follow Christ will no longer be indebted to that, will no longer be living a life that is constantly serving their flesh and serving their sin. That's the first thing to see. The second thing to see with this statement is that we as Christians are not indebted to the flesh. That is not a part of our reality We do not have to give in. When temptation comes, when sin tries to take over, when it tries to overtake our mind and lead us down a path that we know is not pleasing to God, that we know is not glorifying Him, flying to Him, we do not have to give in. We are not in debt to that anymore. We are free from it. We have the ability to say no. We have the ability to fight back. We are not in debt to our flesh. We do not have to listen to it. Now it's still there. Right? If you're alive and awake, you recognize, right? Even as a Christian, even if you've been serving, following the Lord for 50 years, that is still there. There is still the flesh coming after you all the time, trying to get you, trying to convince you that the things of God are not good and that the things of sin are fun and they're going to fulfill you. And we, so, so it's there, but the difference is, is that we as Christians no longer have to give in. We are not enslaved to it, but we have the ability to say no. We have the ability to fight. It's part of who we are. It's part of our identity. Now, there is a problem. I think there's a couple of problems that we face face as Christians when we're trying to deal with this idea. So either as Christians, we may say to ourselves, as we discussed for the last couple of weeks, that, well, because we are saved, there's there's no longer a need to fight sin, right? If there is no condemnation, what is the point? Why would we fight sin if God is not going to hold us guilty? If in our sin we are instantly, in the moment of sin, if we are saved and we are forgiven by Christ, what's the point of resisting? Why would we fight? First off, this is a rejection of the idea that sin is actually bad for you, right? That kind of thinking, and we've all been there and we've all had it, right? But that kind of thinking is assuming That the sin is actually fun, it's actually good, and God is just being a meanie and he's being hard-nosed and saying, I know that thing is going to be fun for you and it's going to fulfill you, but I don't want you to do it. And we begrudgingly are like, well, okay, I guess. I guess I won't fall into that. I really want to. I know how fun it would be. I know how good it would be. Like that has to be the mentality if we say to ourselves, well, if there is no condemnation, I'm just going to sin. Now, I would say that this kind of thinking, if we let it progress, if we let that live in us for long periods of time, if that is the attitude that you have towards sin, and you don't immediately put that to death and say, that's no good, I know that sin is bad. If you let that kind of mentality reign in your mind for long, long periods of time, I mean, I, I, would, I would ask you to reevaluate, do you actually trust God? Do you actually believe the things that he says are true? Because he's told us not to do certain things. Not just to see if we will obey, but because they are actually bad for us. 
They will actually bring destruction in our lives, in our relationships, in the world around us. Do you believe that or are you begrudgingly being obedient? Because if you don't believe it, then you're not trusting in the Lord. And this is a faith issue, right? We should ask the Lord to give us a deeper and stronger faith. If we don't actually trust God, we're kind of like the older brother and the prodigal son. We all know the younger brother, right? He runs off, he takes his inheritance, he goes and squanders it, and he comes back. And the father accepts him and forgives him and brings him into the house. But the older brother, who I think is the point of the story, we, we focus on the younger brother, but the older brother is the one who is, at the end of the story, not welcomed into the feast. Why? Because of his self-righteousness. He thinks, I don't, he doesn't actually want a relationship with the Father. He just wants what the Father has. And when we look around and we say, hey, what, what is the least amount that I can do in order to stay in the good graces of God? How many of the sins can I commit and still be okay? We want all of his blessings. We want heaven. We want all of the things that God gives us, but we don't want him. We don't want a relationship with him. When we trust in the Lord and we have a relationship with him, we want to resist sin at all times. Every single time it comes up, our desire will be that we resist it. The other side, the other problem that arises out of this idea sometimes is that, well, if we... If we don't fight sin, if we sin enough, like maybe we're going to lose our salvation. I have to fight sin because that's the only way that my standing with God can remain in good graces, in in good standing. And we've discussed this, right? For the last couple of weeks, we've discussed this. Our relationship with God is secure in the work of Christ, not in what we do. And so we fight sin. We fight sin purely because we trust God. Because it is indeed evil, it does bring destruction to our life, and we have a desire to please our Father in heaven. So it's not gaining us anything. We are not, we're not gaining more of God's love. We are not gaining more grace. All of that is decided. God loves you. His grace is there. It's never going anywhere. You can't destroy it through a multitude of sin. But that doesn't mean that we just give up. It means that we continue to fight because the God of the universe has called us his children, and we should want to please him. I remember when I was, I don't remember why 11th grade, like pre-calculus, sticks out to me as the one class in all of high school where everybody constantly said, why are we learning this, right? What's the point? I mean, I went from there and then like went and studied the Bible. I've, as far as I know, I've never used anything I learned in pre-cal in my entire life. Maybe I have. I don't even remember what I learned in pre-cal. But like the idea was this, it's, it's an attitude that happens in high school and certain, in certain things and in college too. It's like, why is it that I'm learning this? And we, we have this ingrained in us. If it's not going to benefit me, if it's not going to progress my life to a better state, then why would I learn it? What's the point? And we miss something in that. We miss the fact that learning something true in and of itself is beautiful. That God embodies truth. Learning truth is good in and of itself. You learn pre-cal and you may never use it and there is value in it simply because you learn something that is true. I mean, 
You can read a book that explains how and why and all the details around the, the reason that the Titanic sunk. You don't have to be a boat captain to read that and take value in it and to, and to see that it's good and that it's interesting. Right? There's value in learning truth. There's value in doing something that isn't going to make that isn't going to progress your life. And the problem is we, we have this mentality sort of in our world and we allow it to bleed into Christianity in the sense that we say, well, what is it going to gain me? If I'm not, if my status with God is not going to increase, if God's love is not going to increase, if somehow God's favor towards me is not going to increase by being obedient, then why would I do it? That is culture, like bleeding into what we believe as Christians. It's infecting what we should be believing, and that is that we are obedient to God because he is God. Because he is our father and we want to please him in everything we do. We know that we already are as, as loved as we can be. There is, no more, there is no greater amount of grace that we can. We just do it because God is good and because we love him. There are many people who have, who have bought into, well, if, if it's not going to get me something or if there is no threat of losing my salvation, then I'm not properly inspired to be obedient to God. But it should be enough that God said, do this, don't do this. This is what will bring pleasure to me. Like this is, he's going to look down on us and smile. That should be enough motivation. And I'm telling you that that is the motivation, right? That, that, that your salvation is secure in God and that you don't have to do these things, right? You're no longer indebted to the flesh, but you are free from it. So go and fight and overcome that flesh simply so that it will put a smile on God's faith when you do it. Second thing to see, the result of living according to the flesh is death. Now, when I read this, it like immediately brought me back to chapter 3. The wages of our sin is death. It's the same idea. It's not a new idea for Paul, right? It's not the first time that he is bringing this up. But it is important enough that he's going to bring it up time and time and time again. Because he wants us, excuse me, to understand the devastation and the severity of what it means to not be following after Christ. That if we, are Lord, uh, if we are indebted to our flesh, if we are living according to it, that it brings us death. Now there's a simple concept here, right? There are only two options. We can only be living in the flesh, or we can be living in the spirit. If our minds are set on the flesh, then we will die. But if our minds are set on the spirit, we have life and we have freedom. And the only way in which we can have our mindset on the spirit is that if God does this for us, right? That if God saves us, it is, a, it is an identity change in that we are no longer set on the flesh, but that we are set on the spirit. And so this is what Paul is saying to us, right? Don't do this. It is a call for those who are not Christians. Stop doing this because this is going to be the outcome. So if you are a child of God, if you are being led by the Spirit, this is not what happens, right? That we have been promised life. And so then the, the next idea, right? The, the outflowing of, of not having our minds set on the flesh, of not being indebted to the flesh, is that we are able to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. So here we see that effort is required. There are lots and lots of people who 
think that our sanctification is a process that God does, that you don't have to do anything. You can just sit back and God is going to do everything. That's true in our salvation, right? It's true in the, in the sustaining of our salvation, but the sanctification process, the act of obedience to God is not something that you can sit back on your hands and do nothing and, and God will just work it all out for you. There is effort that has to take place. So when we have our minds set on the spirit, there is an awakening that happens. There is an ability to fight back against sin that we didn't have before. So Paul is appealing to this, right? He's appealing to this new spirit that we have, this new identity that we have, that we are walking in the spirit. And that we are indeed his children. That we are sons and that we are daughters of God. That our spirit has been awakened. That we are able to actually be obedient. That we are able to fight back sin. Now, what he, what he is saying to us is not an option. And here is where I think I struggle the most, and maybe you do as well, is when I read this, I think, oh, yeah, when the day is going well, when I have a lot of energy, like, yeah, okay, I'll put up a fight. But when the kids have been driving me crazy, or I've been tired and I didn't get enough sleep, or all of these things, or I'm in a bad mood, or I have a headache, well, that, I mean, I'm not going to fight in those moments. I mean, God can't really expect me to be fighting all of the time. But that's the message that Paul gives to us. He doesn't say you get to fight back only when you feel like it. But because you are walking in the Spirit, by definition as Christians, we are to fight the sin that comes against us. You see, it's not a sentiment that comes and goes. But it is something that we are doing all of the time. We just talked about the value of Veterans Day, right? We, we um, celebrated this holiday yesterday. And it's really, really important. But one of the things is that you know, we recognize that we don't celebrate those who didn't, who didn't serve our country well, right? We have folks, I mean, I have, I have a cousin who is dishonorably discharged. Like, he doesn't get to partake in some of these things, right? Because his identity as a soldier, when he was in the military, he didn't embrace that. He ran away from it. And so we recognize that our identity as, as somebody who is led by the Spirit, it would be like, if you're saying to yourself, one day I'm going to walk in the Spirit, but then the next day I'm going to walk in the flesh and I'm just going to let sin run rampant. It would be like an American soldier who said, you know what, today I'm going to fight for America, but tomorrow, eh, don't really know. I'm having a bad day. It seems a little easier, so I'm going to go fight with, on the side of our enemy. But then the next day they say, well, I'm feeling better, so now I want to put down on the stars and stripes again and I'm going to fight as an American soldier. That person is not somebody we would honor. Right? That's somebody who is shedding their identity, who doesn't even know who they are, who will not take that on. You see, when we look at our military, one of the reasons that we honor them so greatly is because of the sacrifice that they make. Right? Every day, day in, day out, whether they feel like it or not, they strap on their uniform, they get their weapon, and they defend our country no matter what. And yet, when we think about ourselves, we don't think about it in those terms. Well, I'm a soldier in God's army. I'm a member. I'm a son or daughter. But today I don't really feel like fighting. So I'm going to shed that identity for a little bit. And I'm just going to let sin do its thing. And then maybe tomorrow I'll pick it back up. And I'll be a son or daughter of God again tomorrow. No, that is not what God is calling us to. He is calling us to 24-7, on guard, always fighting. It is a part of who we are. 
It is our identity as we walk in the Spirit that we will be people who will fight back against sin. It's not a choice. It's something that we must do every single day. I mean, think about it in the terms of the reality that Paul begins to bring forward here, right? He hasn't really talked about this yet, but he, brings, but he mentions it multiple times in these verses. That we are children of God. That we are sons of God. That he has adopted us. That we cry out to him. Think about the loyalty that he deserves from us. He doesn't deserve for us to every time we have a bad moment to say, well, I'm not going to fight in this moment. He deserves full and complete loyalty from us. I mean, think about your own family. Think about your children. Think about your siblings. Think about your parents or whoever is in your family that is with you. Right? Think about those people. How loyal are you? Parents, how, how much effort will you give to protect your own children? How deeply do you love your own children? What will you do in order to support your family, your children, your spouse, whatever it is? Think about the loyalty that you have with other sinful creatures here on earth. And then multiply that. A billion is probably not even enough, right? I don't know. There probably isn't a number in which we should be considering how much more loyal should we be to our Father who is in heaven. He has done far more for us than anybody on this planet, right? Any member of your family, no matter how much they love you, no matter how much they sacrifice for you, they haven't done even an iotas of what Christ has done for you. How much greater is your loyalty to the Father? How much greater should your inspiration and your desire to love God, to fight for Him? Think about how much you would fight for your children. It should be infinitely greater your fight for God. To fight against the sin that is is coming in you all the time, trying to get you to to disobey and be disobedient to God. How much greater is that fight? Now, I'm just like you. I have good days and bad days when it comes to that. I have good moments and bad moments when it comes out. I mean, some days I flip-flop 27 times, right? I think, uh, not now, but maybe later... It's a part of of the struggle of being human. But in those moments of weakness, when you think, I just don't have it in me. That's true. You don't have it in you, but the Spirit is in you, right? And that's the next thing we're going to see, is that the Spirit is in you, and it bears witness with your spirit about the truth of who God is. This is a huge and really, really important thing that we would understand. That as children of God, we have the Holy Spirit in us, and He is bearing witness of the truth of the Father. It's really interesting. He makes another statement here, and he says that we only have this after we have been a part of the spirit of slavery. Have you ever wondered why? You see, we we can only walk in the spirit. Salvation has only come after we have walked in a spirit of slavery. And, And have you ever wondered why? You read in Genesis, page three of the Bible, right? They sin, everything goes, you know, it, it, it all gets messed up. Adam and Eve are brought, the curse is brought upon them. Have you ever wondered why God didn't just say, okay, 
Now's the time. Like, send Jesus in on page three of the Bible. Like, we could have saved, there could have been a lot of heartache and a lot of things saved if Jesus had come much earlier. Paul gives us, I think, a really good reason as to why God waited. We all needed to feel that sting of being enslaved to our sin if we're going to truly understand what this freedom means. I ask you, how can we know God's goodness and how can we know his love most fully? What does God say? What, there is no greater love than this that a man lay down his life for whom? His enemy, right? You see, we wouldn't have fully understood how hostile we are to God as if, as if Jesus had come right after the sin of Adam and Eve. In fact, just think about it for a moment. If that would have been what has happened, Jesus comes down right in the flesh. Adam and Eve have to be able to then sacrifice him. They're the only two people on the planet, right? They have to sacrifice him. If you read that story and said, wait, God did all of that simply because they took a bite of a piece of fruit that he told them not to. I mean, it's sin. It requires a sacrifice. But how much greater do we understand God's love and his forgiveness now that we have been exposed to the law in its entirety, now that we have seen the evilness of human nature and all of the things that people have done, how much greater do we understand God's love because we have been enslaved to the spirit of sin? We only understand and appreciate the freedom because we know what it was like to be enslaved. So the spirit of slavery comes first, and it accomplishes the maximum amount of glory to God when he saves us from it. And as sons and daughters, right, Paul tells us, look, we are not to fall back into it. I know a lot of people, I've I've kind of interacted, you know, encountered, it's sort of a popular thing these days. Um, I don't know. I don't know how long, but like it's it's become a popular thing for for Christians to say, well, b- because for a long time Christians like have sort of not given attention to the Old Testament, and so there's this revitalization. Like, well, we better like we better do all of the stuff that the Old Testament told us to. What about all these feasts? Like, shouldn't we be holding these and shouldn't we be doing this? And so there's a lot of people who have gone back and trying to take a lot of the things from the Old Testament, the obligations, and they're trying to take them on again. Good friends of ours that we've known in Durango for a long time have sort of fallen into this. I mean, a lot of people, when we were going to gospel church, I mean, a lot of people have sort of have walked away from that church because of this, because of this idea that they're going to fall back into the old ways. They're going to, they're going to feel an obligation to go back to all the feasts, go back to these things that have enslaved that, that were part of the enslavement of Israel. Now, there's nothing wrong with feasting, right? And there's nothing wrong with giving thanks to God. We want to do that. But when you feel obligated to do it, when you say, I have to do a feast on such and such a day because the Old Testament has told me that I better do it or my thankfulness will not be registered in God's eyes, that's falling back into it. It's going back to slavery. We've been set free from all of those things, right? Feast. Enjoy. I mean, once again, every year, 
For the last couple of years, you know, Gospel Church has been doing this Resurrection Fest. It's a dance and a feast and, and worship and just a whole weekend full of really beautiful, wonderful things. And it's reminiscent of Old Testament feasts. But it's not an obligation. There's no falling back into the slavery that we have been set free from. And this is what Paul is calling us to. It was important that we were enslaved at one point. Because now that we are free, we see all of the beauty and all of the freedom that we have as sons and daughters. And so then Paul tells us, look, our sonship, it is sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, this is verse 16, right? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. You see, the simple dynamic of our relationship with the Father is that before Christ, we were completely separated from Him. We couldn't approach Him because of our sin. And Jesus has stepped down to earth. He has taken that sin upon Himself and repaired and fixed the relationship that we have between us and the Father because the sacrifice has been made. Our sins have been paid for. And then we are given the Holy Spirit in order to seal our status as a son and a daughter of Christ. I mean, of God the Father, right? Christ is our, is our brother. This is an inheritance that we now have. You see, the Holy Spirit's role is not just to inspire us in our sanctification, but he also bears witness about our status when we forget. Last week we read Ephesians 1. It talked about that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the promises that are to come. And we see this idea here again. You see, God has made a list of promises far bigger than we can remember, even on a daily basis. But our problem is that we have a hard time remembering them. And really, we have a hard time believing that they are true. You see, when your faith is weak, we forget the things that God has promised to us, that he has said to us, for instance, right? God has said to us that he will work out all things for the good of those who love him. But how often do you look at your life and it's falling down around you and you're just like, oh yeah, of course. I see it. I see how God is working out all of this for good. We struggle with that, right? Part of what the Holy Spirit does is it bears witness to the promises that God has made to us. When your spirit is downtrodden in you and you say, I think God promises, I don't even know, but I do not see any evidence of it. The Holy Spirit comes along and reminds you. He bears witness to the promises that God has made. They are true. Even if we don't see it. Paul makes this very famous statement. He tells us to walk by faith and not by sight. Why? Are these the two things that he puts at odds with one another? Well, how often do you look around? We have a promise from God that the vengeance is the Lord's. How often do you look around and think, I don't see your vengeance coming down around me. You watch the news right now. Where is the vengeance on the terrorists, right? Where is the vengeance on those who are murdering children in the womb? Where is the vengeance on the people who are abducting and stealing young girls and selling them into slavery? We don't see it. And we think, God, you promised it, but I don't see it. Where is it? And Paul says, 
This is why our faith and our sight are at odds with one another on a regular basis. What God said is true, even if we don't see it, even if we don't see the evidence around us. God is going to take vengeance on all of those who don't believe in him, right? The sin, no sin will ever go unpunished. You and I may never see it, but we trust in the Lord that it's going to happen. That he will not let anybody who has done any of these horrible things go unpunished. Either it's going to be punished with Jesus if they believe in him, if they repent and believe, or it's going to be punished on them if they don't. It's really simple. There will never be a sin that goes unpunished, no matter if you see it, no matter if you, if you, if you see the evidence of it. And this pl- applies across the board. To every promise that, ever, that God has ever given to us, our faith will, I mean, our, our sight will make us doubt it, and our faith will strengthen the promise within us. This is a sort of a famous quotation from C.S. Lewis. When, he, when his wife passed away, he wrote a book on grief. Um, and he made this statement. Go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. This is how we feel. In the midst of a tragedy, in the midst of grief, this is a normal human reaction. This is, this is how many of us experience those things. We cry out to God, and it doesn't feel like He's there, and it doesn't feel like He's doing anything. And in those moments, you can, you can choose to try and trust that, your own feeling and your own sight, or you can choose to believe in the promises that God has made to you. You see, in those moments, we listen to the Holy Spirit because He is bearing witness with our spirit the truth of who God is. That He loves you. That He would never betray you. That He would never leave you. Even if it doesn't feel true, allow the Holy Spirit to speak those truths into your mind. To to renew your faith. To strengthen it so that you will believe that they are true. And here's what's also a little bit interesting. This last little half of verse 17 says, this is going to be true, right? You are going to be a son and daughter of God, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, we like the blessing part of it. We like the glorified part of it. But the suffering part, I I mean... I, I do this, I, I'm sure, I'm sure you're, you're guilty of it as well. Suffering comes, and the first response we have is, God, why are you doing this to me? As if we don't deserve it, as if we deserve something better and greater than the thing that is going wrong, as if we forgot that Jesus says to us at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed is he who is persecuted for my name's sake. It's not even like we shouldn't be expecting it. Jesus told us over and over and over again, if we are going to follow after him, we should be ready to take up our cross, right? We should be ready to suffer. We should be ready to be persecuted. And then when it comes, we say, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? As if we didn't know that it should be there. As if we don't recognize that it's important and that it's vital to the Christian life. This is part of it. 
suffering, persecution. Jesus didn't just say they might come. He said they will come. And then he says, you will be blessed because of it. That's going to look different for each one of us. These sufferings, right? I mean, so, sometimes I fall into this, this trap. This, like, I'm watching my dad suffer through dementia, and it's just a, it's a horrible thing. And I talk to other people, and they tell me, yeah, I saw the same thing. And I recognize, like, I'm not the only one in the world who is, who is suffering through this. Right? Other people have suffered for it but before me. And there are millions of people who are probably suffering through it in this moment while I am. And my, my family is, right? And to, to think that, like, God is doing something mean or, or vindictive against my family is just a silliness, right? It, it, it's broken, and it's not what the Bible promises us. In fact, it promises us the opposite, that we are going to suffer in this life. And in those moments, we have a choice. In those moments, the Holy Spirit, as Paul says here, the Holy Spirit is going to bear witness with our spirit about what is true. That we are sons of God. In those moments when you think to yourself, how am I going to cope? And does God even love me? And is He even there? Listen to the Holy Spirit remind you of what is true, of what is good. Don't believe the lie that God has abandoned you. Don't believe the lie... That God doesn't love you or that he fall into some tailspin of like self-pity. God loves you. He will never forsake you. He is there no matter what you are going through. And the last thing I will say is this. Is that no matter what you and I suffer, Christ suffered worse. The sacrifice of him going to the cross is far greater than anything. Probably than all of the sufferings that all of us in this room and anybody who's ever stepped foot in this room combined together, his suffering is trillions. Of, I don't, once again, no number really does it justice. His suffering is infinitely greater than anything we have had. And why did he do it? So that you and I could be saved. He didn't have to. He could have avoided all of it and been completely justified by staying in, in heaven, seated on his throne. He could have said, those people are not worth it. I'm not stepping down into that. Are you kidding me? Look at what they do to each other. Look how they treat each other. Look how they speak, how they act. No way would I ever step down into that. And that's, he would have been fully justified to just stay in heaven with his father and the Holy Spirit right in this perfect unity forever. He didn't owe us coming to earth and saving us, but he did it. He made that sacrifice so that we could be saved. I don't know about you, but that helps quite a lot, right? When, I, when I'm feeling down or I'm feeling sad for myself or sorry for myself because of the things that are going on, I remember the sacrifice of Christ, that he has offered salvation, that he loves me that much, that he would come here and he would do those things and that he would be willing to suffer all of that so that I could be saved, because he loves me and he loves you. And that's what he was after, right? Bringing salvation to the world. So if you're stuck in one of those ruts, if you're stuck in one of these, these times of suffering and you think, woe is me, let this Holy Spirit bear witness to the truth. Believe them. Fight back the lie that God is not there. Fight back the lie that God doesn't love you or that he doesn't see what's happening or that he doesn't care. He does. And he has proven that, right? We say the, the statement, the proof is in the pudding. He did it. He proved it to us by sending Jesus to earth. If you ever question his love, go back to the cross. 
Be reminded of what Christ has done for you. And you won't question it much longer. I promise you. Remind yourself of that on a regular basis. What has Christ done for you? God loves you. He has proven that in this act. All right. Let us pray. Father God, we are so grateful. We're so grateful that Christ would be obedient. Father, that you came up with the perfect plan to be able to bring salvation to your people and that Christ obediently went to the cross. Father, we don't deserve your love. We don't deserve your forgiveness. We don't deserve the inheritance that you have given us as an heir of your kingdom, as a son and a daughter, and all of the privileges that go along with being your child. God, we, we are unworthy, but you have made us worthy through the sacrifice of Christ. Through his work on the cross, we have become righteous. We have become worthy, and we are no longer condemned. It's, God, it's, it's hard for us to, to, to believe that. It's hard for us to, to really realize all of what that means because we know how bad we are. We know the evil thoughts that we have and the sinfulness that lives and dwells within us. Father, help us to fight that. Help us to embrace fully the truth of who you are, of our identity as a follower of you, as a child of you, as somebody who walks in the Spirit. Father, we're weak and we fail at this. Forgive us where we have failed and strengthen us for tomorrow so that we can do this more fully. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So what's represented at the table here um, is the sacrifice, right? That Christ's body was broken, that his blood was shed. And so we come every week to be reminded of that because it's easy to forget. It's easy to fall back into the self-pity. It's easy to think that God has abandoned us when the truth is and the reality is that he hasn't. That this sacrifice that Christ has made is greater than any sacrifice anybody has ever made for anyone else. This is the greatest act of love in all of human history. That Christ would allow his body to be broken and his blood to be shed so that we could be saved. So God is inviting you. If you are here this morning and you trust in Christ, if he is your savior, he's inviting you to come. It's a I say this every week, right? It's a family meal, right? We are sons and daughters of God. We are in his family. He has adopted us as children. It's a family meal, and he wants you to come forward. If that's you this morning, if your faith is in Christ, he's inviting you to come to the table. But if you're here this morning and your faith is not, I implore you, repent. Ask God for forgiveness, and he will give it to you. Kneel where you are. Come to the altar, whatever you want to do. But now is the time. This is the moment in which God is calling you. To ask for forgiveness. He is ready. He is willing. He is waiting. He, is, he wants to forgive you. He loves you. So go to him. Repent and believe. So everything is set. Come forward. Grab a cup. Grab a piece of bread. And we'll give thanks. And we'll partake together here in a moment.